0: Welcome to Wisdom Trek with Gramps. I am Guthrie Chamberlain and we are on day 2142 of our trek. The purpose of Wisdom Trek is to create a legacy of wisdom, to seek out discernment and insights, and to boldly grow where few have chosen to grow before. Today we continue our extended series of messages that I delivered at Putnam Congregational Church over the past couple of years. This message is week 10 of a 43-week series on the good news according to John the Apostle. John has a unique style and narrative as we walk with him through the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. I pray that it will be a conduit of learning and encouragement for you. Thank you, sir. Thank you, kids. Appreciate that. Your illustration reminded me, if you've ever seen the Survivor programs, where they have a group of people out in the middle of the jungle and they have them do different tasks, one of the tasks they did where they would blindfold the participants or one part of the participants, and then they have one person shouting out the instructions. And it gets pretty funny at times on some of the things that happen. So do appreciate that. And appreciate Sarah and the teachers of our children's messages each week. And today we're going to continue our series on John, from John and this gospel. It's good news. John the Apostle. And Jesus today is going to show evidence that his healing is not based on being in physical contact with someone, but the faith in the person that's being healed, and it must be in accordance with God's will. Today's passage, we're going to read John chapter 4, verses 43 through 54. It's an extension of last week's uh, lesson, and it's on page 1653 in your pew Bible if you want to follow along. As I read the passage, after two days he left Galilee. Now Jesus himself had pointed out to, that the prophet in his own has no honor in his own country. When he arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. They had seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, for they had also been there. Once more, he visited Cana in Galilee, when he had turned the, where he had turned the water into wine. And there was a certain royal, certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. When the man heard that Jesus arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son who was so close to death. Unless you people see signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you will never believe. The royal official said, Sir, come before my child dies. Go, Jesus replied, your son will live The man took Jesus at his word and departed, and while he was still on his way, his servants met him with the news that his boy was living. He inquired as to the time that his son got better, and they said to him, Yesterday at one in the afternoon, the fever left him. Then the father realized that this was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. So he and his whole household believed. This was the second sign Jesus performed after coming to, from Judea to Galilee. Now Jesus was a faith healer, but not what we think of as faith healers today. Those people on TV that claim to heal people by touching them or touching something and having that person touch it, they make a public spectacle of healing as today, many of those faith healers also have a money-making component. And I'm always wondering, if money is involved with it, what is the catch? In today's message, we'll see that Jesus not, didn't even need to be physical, physically present to heal people. Personally, I can't heal anyone. And I don't feel I'm a conduit for God's power to heal others. Frankly, I think most of those who are notable figures in the healing community that we're aware of today bear little resemblance to the signs that Jesus and his apostles showed that we read about in the New Testament. However, that's not to say that I don't believe in supernatural healing, because I do. While I don't have a personal story of somebody in my own family that was instantaneously and miraculously healed, I want to share a story from a pastor and the former president of Dallas Theological Seminary, Charles Swindoll, who I respect as a solid Bible teacher because he's taught the Word of God solidly for many, many decades. Let me share the story that I read in one of his books. Is as I am aware and have read about examples in which the healing power of God left doctors speechless. On one occasion, a close friend developed a malignancy on the side of his tongue. By the time it was diagnosed, it had spread to his lymph nodes and through part of his upper torso. As the father of four, with a full life and a promising career ahead of him, he found it necessary to prepare his will and get his house in order and then began the process of turning over his business to his associates. Several of his friends, including me, were not able to be with him right away, so we agreed to pray for him. Though we were all separated by many miles, we faithfully began to pray, asking God for a miracle, if that would be his will. We asked that the Lord be glorified in his friend's healing and continued life. And to be perfectly honest, None of us knew what the Father's will would be for this friend. But we all knew and agreed that God was able if he would choose so. Furthermore, we loved this man, and we desperately wanted God to snatch him from those, that jaws of death. A palpable sense of assurance enveloped us like a warm blanket. Though we had never met together to pray, we were confident that God would intervene in some unusual way. And did he ever. Within days of our friends stepping off the plane in Rochester, Minnesota Minnesota for more scans, further examinations, refined diagnosis, and if needed, a more aggressive treatment. If anyone could help him, it would be those experts at Mayo Clinic. And to their stunned amazement of this four physician team, further x-rays and scans were taken, but no trace of the disease could be found. The obvious explanation was the original diagnosis must have been incorrect. But the records were double-checked, and they reached the same conclusion. That widespread malignancy was unmistakable in those first scans. But now all the tumors were gone. Furthermore, annual checkups after that confirmed that they were gone for good. What had happened? Clearly and miraculously, God healed this man. But unfortunately, God doesn't often perform miracles of healing because He has a greater purpose in mind. I think all of us have been touched with loved ones or spouses that have been impacted with cancer. We've been impacted ourselves with cancer, or some other dreaded disease, and God did not heal in those instances in the way that we would have liked them to would have liked them to. And there are many other examples. But more often than not, God uses what he's given us in this world to do healing, whether it's through medicines, such as aspirin. We sort of take it for granted anymore, but when it was first released in 1899, aspirin was considered, and in some ways it is still considered, the miracle drug. I know it does wonders on my headaches, and Paula's headaches sometimes. We don't think about how God has used men throughout the ages to heal other people through drugs, such as as simple as what we consider simple, but it wasn't simple when it was first created, that miracle drug. It prevents heart disease, it prevents cancers, it prevents a lot of other areas. And we've seen the death rate of cancers and many other diseases have plummeted dramatically. Certainly not everybody gets healed. Not everybody recovers from cancer, but we do have some in our congregation that their scans have been clean for the last several years. And we praise the Lord for that. For example, 30 years ago or more, Hazel's chance of living through childhood leukemia would have been less than 10%. But now, childhood leukemia has an over 90% rate of being cured, 94% right now. Now, I do a lot of research and a lot of reading on modern technologies and the research that's coming down the pike. I like to stay on top of everything, all these new inventions and stuff. And one area that really fascinates me is that world of medicine. Death from cancers and heart diseases with what's on horizon now will be virtually eliminated over the next few decades. Even some of the science that was found in the COVID vaccination has been spurred ahead to cover all sorts of cancers and other type of diseases. Through medication, miracles are still happening, all provided by wisdom that's given by God to these humans on earth that he's allowed to prosper and come up with these inventions. Now, admittedly, I only know of a handful of unexplained healings of people that had bodily disease. But make no mistake that God can and still does miraculously heal today, whether it's instantly like the story that I read you or whether it's through medicines. But if it happened every day, if everybody we knew became cured from their illness... We wouldn't think of them as miracles anymore that we hardly think of aspirin as a miracle drug today. We take it whenever we have aches and pains. We get a headache, we take it. It doesn't cure everything, but it certainly does wonders on a lot of things. But if we happened to cure everything today, we would call them regulars and not miracles. Still, I know many more, though, who have a spiritual healing from a disease called sin, where God changes a person from the inside out and their lives have become reborn. they become a new person. They were dead in sin and now they're alive to new life. There's no need for us to find somebody who has a gift of healing, supposedly, to make it happen. God has given us unrestricted access to his throne room of heaven, where we are invited to come directly into his throne, the throne of the Almighty, with our pressing matters and our problems and our distressing afflictions. Now, it doesn't hurt if we want to call others who are righteous to come alongside us, to pray with us, to lay hands on us and pray. As we're told in James chapter 5, that's certainly a spiritual admonition to do so. But we don't have to have a faith healer to heal us. If God chooses He can heal us instantly. If he chooses not, then he has a greater purpose in mind. Now, there's no need for us to go to somebody that's trying to make money at our expense. However, we must remember that the Lord's will is to do what he determines is right, which may not be what we want or request. And at this point, our trust is challenged because we struggle with our faith. Why doesn't God heal this person? We've prayed We've pleaded, but we even saw some like Jill's relative who had COVID so bad that was on death's door brought back to life. God does still heal today. And we begin our reflection on the scriptures for today. Keep in mind that John wrote this gospel decades after these occurrences that he's writing about. This good news. And we see snapshots, and that's what God, the gospel of John is a series of snapshots or pictures of his time with Jesus Christ that he wrote in his latter years. And they're intermixed with knowledge and wisdom of facts that happened. And then he puts in this little sidebar saying, at verse 43, at the end of two days, Jesus went on to Galilee. And remember last week, the pleading Samaritans say, please stay with us longer. So Jesus stayed with them two more days and taught them, and many more came to believe. After that, though, he continued on to Galilee, where he spent his childhood in Nazareth. And If you look on your bulletin insert on the side with the map on it, our theme today is Faith That Matters. In the map, we'll see Nazareth sort of in the middle of the map in black, and then Cana and Capernaum are the two cities we're going to be discussing today. Down at the bottom of the map is where Sychar and Mount Garrison would have been. So he traveled into his childhood territory, his home. And Jesus had warned his disciples. And this is another snippet that John just sort of put in his text here, because it didn't happen in this case, but he was preparing us for it. He said in verse 44, he himself said that the prophet is not honored in his hometown. And isn't that true? Once people get to know you, even if you've achieved some sort of fame, you're least honored in your hometown among your own people at times. It's funny how that works. Now, you may have mentioned this, that because they were going back to his childhood stomping grounds, and in this case, John had been reflecting on the success that they had with those foreigners, those half-breeds, Samaritans that we talked about last week, Jesus had great success with. So he was inserting this little verse in here that their prophet is not honored in his hometown. He granting us access to Jesus' inner life. And while the present visit was a pleasant time among the Galileans, who were perhaps now excited because this is at the beginning, toward the beginning of Jesus' ministry, they were excited because his hometown hero was coming back to the area. When people get what they want, belief comes easily. In verse 45, it says, Yet the Galileans welcomed him, for they had been in Jerusalem at the Passover celebration and had seen everything that he did. So they had been to Jerusalem during the Passover. Jesus must have performed some miracles and signs then, and now he was coming back to his hometown, and they were giving him kudos, our hometown hero who heals people. But that's not how it lasted. How will you respond when confronted with truth? When the true Messiah confronts the Messiah of their expectations, who will they choose? In the days ahead, we'll see, as we go through John, the clash of the wills, even those that he grew up with, now ridicule him in later chapters. Who will they choose? Humans' expectation versus God's sovereignty. Jesus' encounter with this royal official that we're going to read about now illustrates the faith response that Jesus actually desired. Now, John sets the location in Cana. If you find Cana on your map, it's sort of the middle toward the top. And this is where he performed his first sign, turning water into wine at the wedding. And a royal official who had been conducting business in Canaan, came to him when he heard that Jesus was in Cana. And he tells us that this man's home was in Capernaum. If you'll find Capernaum on your map, it's at the top of the Sea of Galilee, an important town on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee, roughly 18 miles away. And it would have taken six hours to walk that distance or a couple hours if you had a horse or a chariot that you were riding. In verse 46, it says, And he, Jesus, traveled to, through Galilee, and he came to Cana, where he had turned the water into wine. There was a government official in nearby Capernaum whose son was very sick. Now, the term translated government or royal official is the Greek word basilicus. And it generally refers to something or someone associated with royalty. In Acts chapter 12, it referred to royal clothing and royal territory. In James chapter 2, it refers to the royal law that he was talking about. The man may have been part of Herod Antipas's extended family. However, he was more likely he served in the royal court there in Capernaum. But regardless, he was a man of influence. He was a man of wealth. He was a man of privilege, and he wielded considerable authority in this area. And we can be sure that the, his coming to see Jesus, this lowly rabbi, did not go unnoticed. And his demeanor, though, as a royal official, did not fit his position. His son lay dying in Capernaum, and he begged Jesus to make the journey. And that begging was not befitting of a royal official. They didn't beg anyone. In verse 47, it says, When he heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went and begged Jesus to come to Capernaum to heal his son who was about to die. Now, this is a good rendering of the Greek imperfect verb tense. It describes an action that's either ongoing or continuous, repetitive. So the urgency of the son's illness, the official cast off all his dignity that he had, and he kept on begging, Jesus, please come, heal my son. And it was the verb tense that's used. He's repeated this phrase over and over. This royal official was probably used to getting his way when he asked for something. But Jesus responded with somewhat of a rebuke that seems somewhat a bit harsh here. In 48, it says, Jesus asked, will you people never believe in me unless you see miraculous signs and wonders? Now, this verb, you people, in the New New International Version, is just the plural Greek word of you. So Jesus was identifying people as a group. And it could have been, the Galileans in general saying, you people, you Galileans, don't you want believe unless you see a miracle? Or it could have been that royal family that the, this official was with. Say, don't you believe unless you see an, a miracle? Because this man was an aristocratic Jew, more than likely he was a Sadducee. And Sadducees didn't believe that God interviewed, in, inter, intervened in human affairs Instead, they believe that each person creates his own fate, and therefore, whatever that fate receives, they deserve, including illness, poverty, and death. So it's sort of ironic that the Sadducee is begging Jesus for a miracle in this case. Because the man was a Galilean standing among other Galileans, it also was likely a pattern that Jesus started to notice with these people. Their thinking would become unmistakable later in verse, uh, chapter 6 when we get to it. First, the man desperately wanted to see get to Jesus. The official pleaded, Lord, please come now before my little boy dies in verse 49. And this please, please suggest that he saw a limitation in Jesus' power One that prevented him from healing over great distances. He thought that Jesus had to be in the presence of the boy for him to be healed. And this would be somewhat understandable. Think about it if you were born in the early 1900s and the telephone was just, had come out and Thomas Edison announced that he could talk over this wire to somebody in a different room. Well, there's some logic there because although you don't understand it, and it appears to be a miracle that some, speaking in this device over here, you could hear them over here. Think about it if you were born in the early 1900s and then somebody showed you a smartphone. And on that smartphone, you could see someone across the entire world and you could talk to them face to face. What a miracle, what an imaginable, unimaginable miracle that would be to the place where people, like in Paula's mom's condition, she's having a hard time distinguishing between the person being in the room and the person being on the phone. It's a miracle. And that's what this official had in his mind, was how can somebody heal my son and he's not even there? There was no president for this distance healing. They had so-called healers, but they would always have to be in the presence. Furthermore, he presumed, as a royal official would be used to doing, to tell Jesus how to conduct his business, how to conduct that healing, rather than simply trusting in him to care for this son. And more significantly, he sought Jesus as a means to get what he wanted, not as a messiah, who was worthy to be worshipped? But nevertheless, the royal official did not relent. He continued to beg. Facing a desperate situation at this point at this point, you see, he wasn't an aristocrat. He wasn't an official. He wasn't a Sadducee. He wasn't even a Galilean. Instead, he was a father whose sick boy was ready, he was about to die. And he was desperate and would do anything as any of us would do for our children. He would do anything to preserve that life. The royal official located Jesus in Cana, but his son lay in Capernaum, 18 miles away. Nevertheless, Jesus healed that man's son with a mere word, proving that distance cannot diminish his power any more than there's any distance between us and our telephone for pennies. We can talk to anyone across the country, across the world, face-to-face Just think of the power that Jesus has in his capacity to heal others. Instead, Jesus used this vulnerable man's state of mind to teach him genuine belief. In verse 50, it says, Then Jesus told him, Go back home. Your son will live. And the man believed what Jesus said and started home. He said, in effect, go about your business. Your son will live. Don't worry about it. I got it covered. That's what Jesus implied. And John says, and this man believed what Jesus said. And that's significant. Belief is a critical feature for it to happen. It's a necessary step in order to achieve the belief that Jesus was the Messiah and Savior. When John used the word believe without an object, as in now we believe in verse 42, he described a saving faith to trust in Jesus. The Samaritan said to the woman, we not only believe because what you told us, we now believe because we have seen the Savior for ourselves and have heard his words. And he describes that as saving faith. In the same verse, in verse, chapter 3, verse 16, that famous verse, uses that same phrase, everyone who believes in him. The man believed in Jesus here was an accurate belief, and it was an essential first step, but it's not the same belief in this phrase in verse 50 that we see in the next verse. Clearly, the Lord's word was enough for the Father to believe in his mind, that his son may be healed over time or maybe instantly. John said he started home, but it could be translated that he carried on his business because it's the same verb as the Lord used go earlier in the, ver- in the chapter. And someone reading this too quickly might think that he started home immediately. And that was our fir- my first thought when I started studying this. Or that he departed from Jesus' presence in verse 50. But it means something else. A natural response would be that he rushed home to verify that his son was indeed getting better or or better. But If we examine the details more closely, we see a different twist to this. Capernaum was 18 miles away. He could have gotten there that same day and returned to his son. He probably had a horse or a chariot. It only would have been a two-hour trip for him to get back home, and it would have been easily done. But as mentioned earlier, Capernaum was this distance away. But in verse 51, it says, While the man was on his way, some of his servants met him with the news that his son was alive and well. Note the time of the healing, though, in verse 52. He asked them when the boy had begun to get better, and they replied, Yesterday afternoon. At one o'clock, his fever suddenly disappeared. So his father didn't start out for home right away. It wasn't until the next day he was headed home. Because Jesus had told him, go about your business. Your son will live. And he had enough faith in Christ that he would be true. He had come to Cana to do business. He met Jesus there while he was on business. And so he finished the work that he had come to do. And then verse 53, then the father realized that this was the very time Jesus told him, your son will live, the exact time. And he and his entire household believed in Jesus. Note the absence of the direct object here. Whereas before he believed the word Jesus spoke, that his son would be healed, now he simply believed in Jesus, That kind of faith brings a person in the right relationship with God through his son, Jesus. It moves beyond that mere acceptance of his message that his son would be healed to trust in Jesus as that Savior and Messiah, trust him as the son of God. He and his entire household believed in Jesus. And then John gives us one of those other sidebars, those interludes that he weaves without his gospel. In verse 54, he says... This was the second miraculous sign that Jesus did in Galilee after coming from Judea. The first being changing water into wine at the wedding, and then we know from John's other gospel or the other Gospels accounts of Jesus performed many miraculous signs and wonders throughout Galilee and Judea, and throughout those years, those three years of ministry, and that his growing fame brought multitudes seeking physical and spiritual healing. Before long, the movement to began to form where followers fell behind this rabbi from Nazareth who happened to be a descendant of David. They believed his words and they appealed, appeared to believe in him. But they were also looking for a king to lead them out of bondage. Would they accept the kingdom that he promised instead of being a king today? Or did they want the king of their own making? So what's the application of this passage well, on the other side of your bulletin insert, I have three points here that we want to cover. Easy believing versus saving faith, and there's three types of belief. The first is just mere intellectual assent. And this type of belief is an intellectual assent to a specific historical fact. For example, some people believe that Jesus Christ, in the same way as they believe in Napoleon or George Washington. They believe that he lived, he was a real person in history, That they're not trusting him to do anything for them today. That's the first type of belief people have. There's a lot of people in the world that believe Christ was a person in history, but that's as far as their belief goes. The next is a temporal faith. This type of belief is a step in the right direction, and it is acceptable, and yet it falls short of what we ultimately want our belief to be. For example, we might say that you had a financial faith if you prayed to the Lord to help you with your finances, or that you trusted the Lord to take care of your family, so that was a family faith, or to help you make decisions, so that was a decision-making faith that you prayed to God for, or we pray, say, if we're going on a trip, we ask for traveling mercies. That's a travel faith that we might have. All of these are good. However, all of these are temporal. They're not a believing faith, their faith that God will be, we believe enough where God will help us through certain situations in life. And I'll get back to the third point here in a second. John's story of the father's desperate son, to see him healed because he is on death's, death's door and restored to health, illustrates a difference between that authentic faith, saving faith and the other kinds of belief. When Jesus assured the man that his son will live, the man and his entire household believed In Jesus. He believed that Jesus would grant his request in the first verse, in verse 50. That was temporal faith. But later he realized that the son's miraculous recovery coincided with his word at the exact point in time that he spoke it. And then his entire household believed in Jesus. He then believed that Jesus was the Messiah, accepting all the claims of Christ trusting him as his Lord and Savior. So let's ask ourselves, what is our nature belief? Do we call on the Lord to save us in our finances, to restore our health or the health of one of our loved ones, to keep harm from coming to our family? And if we do that, don't stop. He wants us to come to him with our everyday cares and concerns, our prayer requests that we bring to his throne. The Lord desires to be an integral part of our life, To be part of our daily experience. But don't stop there. Don't let that be extent of our trust the end in temporal matters. As we go on to point three, the third type of belief is saving faith. Jesus told Nicodemus in John three, sixteen, this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only Son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. Each one of us is sick with a terminal disease called sin. And justice demands the punishment for that sin is eternal separation from God. But because Jesus is our Savior, he paid the penalty for that sin that we might have eternal life. He can heal us from the disease of sin by trusting Jesus as our Savior. This is the kind of belief that Jesus calls us to exercise. This is saving faith. Faith. And we're going to sing in our last hymn today, He Touched Me. Now, we don't have Jesus present with us like this royal official didn't have Jesus in the presence of his son, but Christ still healed him. In the same way, Christ touches us and heals us from our disease of sin. We would pray that he would heal us from all other diseases in our physical body. But as we grow older, we know that that's not going to happen all the time. But that's what the message today is. There's three types of belief. Yes, we believe that Jesus Christ was a historical figure. Yes, we believe that he will intervene and help us in our daily lives. But most of all, we believe that he is our Savior and he saved us from that disease of sin, just as the knowledge came from this royal official in today's lesson. And then our next chapter for next week's message starts out with this verse in chapter 5. Sometime later... Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. And this is John intertwining these snippets, these sidebars into his his good news to give us a picture of flavor. And the followers face another difficult choice because next week we'll learn about a picture of legalism. So I'd encourage you to read chapter 5, verses 1 through 18 for next week's message. Let us pray. Father, we do thank you that you not only came in history, that you not only came to help us with our daily trials and tribulations, and when you choose, you choose to heal, and sometimes you choose not to, based on your will. Most of all, we thank you that you came to be our Savior, that you came to save us from that disease called sin, that we might have eternal life with you. We praise your holy name because of this. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. I pray that this message was a blessing and a time of learning from God's word. Thank you so much for allowing me to be your guide, your mentor, but most importantly, I am your friend as I serve you through the Wisdom Trek podcast and journal each day. And as we take this trek of life together, let us always live abundantly, love unconditionally, listen intentionally, learn continuously, lend to others generously.